0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Lift. This is Tyra Sellers. And Linda LeBlanc. Yay. And we're here today to talk about Chapter 6, the benefits from learning from experts and self-managing development. And I'm really excited because we have, as usual, a special guest today. And today, our special guest is Dr. John Austin. He got his PhD in Cognitive and Behavioral Sciences from Florida State University a bachelor's in psychology and philosophy. Me too, John, from the University of Notre Dame. He is a former professor of psychology in industrial organizational and slash OBM at Western Michigan University. He is the founder and CEO of Reaching Results, which is a consulting company that focuses to help folks and companies improve safety, leadership skills, management. Um, So John, welcome.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. I am so excited to be with my two good friends here today to talk shop and to geek out a little bit. It's going to be Yay,
0: great. you're in the right place for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm excited to learn a little bit about what's kind of happening in your world these days. I hear from Linda that you are working on a book and some other exciting stuff. Why don't you tell us about it?
1: Yeah, uh, thanks. Um, the, the book that I'm working on right now is uh, a leadership book for leaders in ABA specifically. Um, and so um, I'll be speaking at some conferences next year where I'm kind of laying out this model of leadership and talking about the book. And uh, it should be out. Uh, it should be out springtime or so next year. Um, and uh, the idea here is that I'll just kind of give you a, a high high level overview, but like, um, you know, the idea is like, I think that in, in behavior, behavior analysts are really good at changing behavior, but we're not always really good at prescribing which behavior to change and what we want to do instead, right? Like we're kind of like target agnostic in, in many cases, right? So like in OBM, especially, and in leadership, especially, we can change the behavior, but what do we want to change it to? Like, what do, we, what do we want to be doing? And I think that's relevant for our conversation today as well. Um, and so, you know, over the past like 15 or 20 years or so, I've been teaching OBM and leadership. And so I started to look at like the work that I've done alone and also with Nicole Gravina and some other colleagues and partners. Um, and, um, and I think there's three big areas. There's self-management, there's relationship management, and then there's performance management. And so um, I won't go into detail more than that, but that's kind of the, the general kind of overview of the book. Um, it'll, it'll, be, uh, it'll be focused on helping you to self-assess and reflect on your ability to kind of execute in those three areas. Uh, and the better that. we get. Cool. Thanks.
0: Yeah, that sounds be- amazing.
1: <laughs> awesome. Good. Well, well, let's hope it turns out amazing.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: sounds amazing in my mind.
2: <laughs> well, and I think that idea of self-assessment and reflection, that's something that we really maybe so much as harped on, yeah, maybe a little book. too much <laughs> <laughs> of just how important that is. You know, you have access to so much more data about yourself than anyone else does. If you only look at that data but when we kind of have that outward focused lens, we can end up with less data about our own behavior than everybody who's watching us from the outside.
1: Yeah, right. Well, and it, uh, the same goes for, you know, if you have a coach, which I'm a big believer in having a coach, by the way, um, but the coach doesn't see everything um, and only sees really what you reveal to the coach. And so they can only help you that much. Um, but you see it all. Well, maybe you don't see it all. Maybe you can. You can can see you can see more than others uh in in many cases, right?
2: And you can Um, see different things, particularly when you get good at self-reflecting, and you kind of can just tolerate a little bit of that distress at I can also look at when I wasn't perfect.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that if you are not willing to do that, the benefits that you can have from your interactions with other individuals are diminished because you are probably engaging in behavior to sort of obfuscate or hide some of those pieces of yourself that would be enriched or improved uh if you were willing to take a look at them embrace them bring them along for the ride because they're there anyway and take a little bit more of a purposeful approach um so I I love that idea and I'm a big fan of a trifecta I don't know why I love things in threes so the fact that you have like three main things I love it
1: <laughs> yeah it's about as many as I can remember that's why
0: it's <laughs> Fair, fair. Mine is much weirder. I like it because three looks like half of eight and eight looks like an infinity symbol. So <laughs> there but, you, Tyra, go.
1: you bring up, you bring up a really good point. And like, I think that, that, um, being able to recognize that you can improve is vital. And mm-hmm. that's not always a skill that's taught to us, um, especially in business. Right. I mean, but I, I mean, it goes hand in hand with the, this movement to improve our ability to be vulnerable um, and that being an important leadership skill and trait, right, uh, behavior, you know, so like um, just think, thinking about that, thinking back over the last like 20 years, uh, teaching courses in business, the gold standard for me has been if I'm teaching a leadership course, I want at least one person or more to, in the group at the end to say something like, you know, I felt this was about them when we started, but I realize now it's about me. Mm. You know, if I can get that light bulb to go off, like that's a huge success, I think. Right? Agreed.
0: I mean, Linda and I often will say, you know, in all of your interactions with all the humans in your life, there is one common denominator, sweetheart, and it's you.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and if multiple things aren't going well, you might want to consider that variable.
0: <laughs> I mean, speaking from personal experience, right? When I'm like, oh, it was that person and it was that person. And after a while, it's like a pattern. Like, wait a minute, they're all different. Those are different contexts. I'm the same, and I'm the common denominator in all of those contexts. Probably I'm bringing in something to this equation.
1: Well, it's just logic, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, in each of our chapters, we have a quote, um, Some most often from someone outside of uh, our profession, sometimes our profession adjacent and sometimes within. Um, the quote in this chapter uh, by Tony Bazan, is learning how to learn is life's most important skill. And I think that is the best quote for this chapter because this chapter really focuses on exactly what you, Linda and John were just talking about, which is we have to take an active approach with our supervisees and trainees and teach them how to learn effectively Um, in the context where we have some control, but also for their career longevity when they aren't going to have as rich a schedule of access to uh, supervisors and training environments and things like that. Um, So for me, this is one of the most important chapters because this is the sort of chapter that really focuses on what we can teach that will literally pay dividends for the person's career.
2: So true, and you know, um, in some of the work on promoting generalization, and in this instance, the the repertoire that we want generalized is your ability to learn from a much broader array of events that present themselves. There's this notion of you have to teach mediating repertoires, a repertoire that you bring with you into every situation that makes you more capable in that situation and more capable of generalized behavior, more capable of nuanced behavior. And um, that matters so much once you don't have anybody responsible for teaching you anymore. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people, that is a cliff that's waiting in your you know early to mid 20s or late 20s where you've always been in a context where there's a structure and someone responsible for what you need to learn and how you're going to learn it and they got contingencies for you
1: (laughs) yeah and that you know that's um that makes me that reminds me of the, the there's a figure in the chapter on page 99 of, uh, if you've got the hard copy book, like me, <laughs> and if you don't, you should. Um, so like the figure that I love this figure of, um, kind of it's the drape, the Dreyfus pyramid, of, mm. you know, kind of a, of development really in terms of knowledge and expertise and, um, passing the BACB exam indicates minimum competence right and right, so, like, like you're just
0: dipping your toe in the water
1: <laughs> you, you know like yeah you know a broad array of things around behavior right and you've de- you've demonstrated your competence in those areas but just like getting a phd when i got mine and i thought i knew everything within a year i realized i don't know anything <laughs> <laughs> and like the rest of my career is going to be like learning the stuff i didn't know right and like refining this and like getting better and so i don't know i'm like 30 years in at this point, and every single day, I learn more. And I don't know about you you guys probably feel the same way. But anybody who's listening to this, who is in that, you know, state where my former self was when I was in my 20s, thinking I knew everything, just, you know, like, open your mind a little bit and realize that maybe there are lots of things that you still can learn.
2: And that's the good thing, right? That's yeah. the good news. <laughs> Exciting, <laughs> because right? that's how you stay excited for 30 years and stay right. in the career.
1: Right. Exactly. If you do that, I mean, what a horrible job it would be to do the same exact thing every day. And, you know, 100 percent of the job. In in my view, I mean, the whole fun and challenge, the reinforcement really comes from like being surprised. Like, oh, yeah, that is a thing that people do. And I didn't know about that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Or not quite like, geez, I don't really know the answer to that off the top of my head. Let me really think about it or reach out. You know, let me phone a friend. Um, well, sort of on that same line, the chapter spends a little bit of time talking about observing and given that we, like most of us learn via observation, just we're lucky enough to have generalized observing repertoires and it's something that happens. So why does it matter? Do do either of you have an opinion about, I know you have an opinion, Linda, because I read the book with you, but (laughs) do either of you have an opinion about why, Why it's important that supervisors need to add teaching observation skills, observational learning skills, or at least discussing them. Why that's important to add to your list. Like, yeah, the task list is great, but here are some other things that are going to get you a lot more mileage. Why does it matter? Because we do it anyway.
1: It's hmm, a great question. I mean, I, I think that um, my my initial response is like the the reason it matters is because it actually helps you to improve quicker. Like mm-hmm. that's that's one reason, right? There's this great book that I like. Um, that it's not nearly as good as your book. Um,
0: I mean, really, Far- it's not.
1: It's not. But uh, but it's it's worth uh, it's worth a read of the summary at least, and it's called the first 20 hours. And it's kind of how to learn any skill in 20 hours. And what they say is like, not, not to a level of mastery, but to a certain level of competence so that you can, you you can do it well. Right. Like, so like learning guitar, learning a language, learning to surf and the uh, the author goes through and he, he actually demonstrates he, he went through learning lots of these skills and using this model. And, and, and so like, having a model around that actually helps you accelerate your learning. Um, Part of it is self-observation, but um, but another part of it from his perspective was having a coach or like finding somebody who knows enough to say, yeah, like all this stuff down here, don't do that right now, like do this other thing. And it saves you, it saves you years sometimes of trying to kind of fiddle around on your own, right? So like once you've got the targets, then you're able to self-observe a lot more effectively.
2: Agreed. And, you know, I think um, we self observe and also observing others carefully mm-hmm. and almost having this running list of questions, not just, I see what you did, but I wonder why you did that. And I wonder why you didn't do the other thing. And is there a particular way that you did that that I'm not noticing that's important? And when you are learning to do something new, you know, your first look at someone who does it well is just kind of like, wow, that was great. <laughs> but wow, that was great. Isn't going to allow you to replicate some of those critical components. If, if you're not kind of walking yourself through, why does what I see matter and what mm-hmm. am I not seeing? And yeah. Set yourself up to ask those kinds of questions if you're lucky enough to, to have access and audience to the, that expert or really good person. Yeah. And what
0: you articulated is exactly what I think needs to be taught. So the supervisor should be teaching trainees and supervisees how to ask those questions in a couple of different ways. One, they should be tacting themselves you know, when they're doing things. Um, But they should talk about sort of that set of questions, that laundry list or checklist that they're using when they're going through their own kind of decision making. But when they're watching an expert, uh, you know, they can watch an expert with the trainee or supervisee and kind of walk through those questions and then start teaching the trainee or supervisee to ask those questions themselves. Because when you don't have access to someone right there to help out with all that stuff anymore, you need You need a Jiminy Cricket on your shoulder that can kind of help you go through those things. So like Linda, to your point, it's almost like a set of mediating um, responses that you're going to have to answer yourself and you might not always get it right, but at least you're not missing that opportunity to be purposeful in your your observation.
1: Yeah, these are great points. I mean, I love this idea of having a list of questions and kind of narrating what you're you know your your process it reminds me of you know the think aloud
2: doesn't yes. it remind you of the think aloud protocol That's where I was
1: going yep right yep. and so like I, it reminds me like in graduate school I got to work with uh, Anders Ericsson he was I just made sure he was on all my committees and stuff and got to spend time in his lab and stuff like that and he was kind of the leader in this you know think think aloud think aloud protocol protocol analysis
0: yeah
1: and um I just love the idea of narrating what you're, what you're thinking as a supervisor, right? So like that's, that's part of it. And the other element that I loved about what you said, the little Jiminy Cricket, <laughs> the, 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 I mean, the, in my experience, and this is just like, I'm sure there's data on this that I'm not aware of because I'm not an expert in this particular area. But like in my experience, the, way, the only way I've ever gotten that Jiminy Cricket is by spending a lot of time with a very good supervisor. Mm-hmm. or coach or whatever however you mm-hmm. want to phrase it right and so this is one of the things that i talk about in leadership a lot and and it's a barrier for a lot of people but they don't spend enough time talking to their supervisees right and i don't know how you guys feel about that but if it's like i know that i i get that having a a process and written questions those will facilitate the performance for the performer right I get that. But there's some nuance in there that you don't get uh, that in the written word that you could get and you will get from seeing multiple examples from your supervisor in lots of different situations. Uh, yes. What do you guys think about that?
2: I totally agree. And, you know, it, it's not the only Jiminy Cricket, but I know I've talked enough when I hear one of my, when I would hear one of my students or former supervisees say, so I was in this situation and I thought, what would Linda say? What would
0: Linda do? <laughs> right.
2: And that right. doesn't mean you have to do that because Linda's not always right. But if you've heard me say enough things and explain why I made enough choices, then, and you can bring that forward with you and compare how's this situation match up to that, you still have a little bit of that ongoing guidance,
1: Yeah. And can I add to that real quick? Um, Just, I think a precursor to that behavior might be, and this is maybe, I think I hear this because I think it's relevant for managers and leaders and organizations. They'll hear someone, a supervisee or a peer who they're trying to influence, say the same words that they said or the same idea. And sometimes people get frustrated by that because they're like, I said it, no one said anything. And now this person's saying it and they're getting all the attention. But I would read that as influence right? Like you're succeeding in what you're doing. You're becoming the Jiminy Cricket a little bit.
0: <laughs> yes. That's so funny that you said that because I was going to say I have, because I have the pleasure of being supervised and mentored by Linda. I've had the pleasure of being coached and, and instructed by you, John. And at different points I have, after I've said something, usually it's within, you know, a, a supervisee or something like that. I will reflect and say like, wow, like that John Austin coming out of my mouth. Like I look on my shoulder and it's a little Linda Jiminy cricket sitting there. And I think that is such an amazing thing when I can link back, you know, uh, to a particular person, and sometimes it's not even someone I've had a relationship with. It's someone that I have seen give a phenomenal presentation. Um, and something they've said just stucks with me, stuck with me. or the way they explained something really was impactful and made sense. Uh, And, you know, you, you reuse that and give credit where credit's due in those instances. But I, I feel when I do that, like, wow, you were good job learning, Tyra. You did a good job. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. And, you know,
2: there are so many little things that any of us do. And, you know, the other thing I think is important to do as a supervisor is when you mess up, describe that too. Hey. So it turns out I did this and it worked out, but don't do that because I kind of shouldn't have. And I got lucky, but luck isn't going to get us there in the long run because with, you know, and here's why that wasn't the best thing to do. It just happened to work out okay because we, we derive rules all the time Mm -hmm. about what we're seeing and, you know, when it works, we're going to the derived rule is like i'm going to do that and uh, sometimes it's not actually the optimal way to do it and um so having that vulnerability of like i got to narrate the the not quite what jack michael would in qr not quite right not that way please so um, funny,
1: that just came up in a conversation with another, uh, with a leader I talked to that last week, and you can, you know, where it came from. It's so funny. Yes, we, we use it in our house, too. Yes. Like my, my wife uses it, never, never had a class with Jack or anything like that. Like, we'll just uh, not QR or something.
0: <laughs> so... I yes. love that. I end all the time. But, you know, that's okay, because totally. that's learning. That's growth. It's a little uncomfortable. But, you know, that's, that's what happens when you want to be mindful of improving and making sure that you're honoring past mistakes by not repeating them and not teaching them to someone else.
1: I really like this idea. Can I just say one more thing, Linda? I'm sorry. Um, I I really like this idea of narrating your process failure when the outcome is, is a success. That's what you just described, right? Like that's something that, we don't, yeah, well, I think we, like, we don't do, we don't spend enough time doing that and it requires, it's back to vulnerability and it's an excellent way, I would suggest to build psychological safety too on your team, because if you show that vulnerability and you model that behavior, then it's more likely that they're going to say something about when, you know, they achieved the right result in the wrong way or whatever, right? Um, And, uh, you know, there are lots of people in OBM and organizational performance and leadership who will say, well, if the results are there, like, don't worry about the behavior. Like Gilbert was famous for that, right? And it's very efficient and it's logical until you realize that, well, you know, lots of bad things can happen along the way. And I don't mean unethical, I mean, certainly unethical, but I don't mean merely unethical. I mean, like they can be a lot more subtle than that and also drive all kinds of dysfunction in the organization when you get the right results the wrong way. So I like that one a lot.
2: Awesome. Well, you know, John, I know that you did work with Anders Ericsson and this notion of what is an expert is, is something I love to hear you talk about. You know, it's important that you not just watch your buddy or your buddy that's one year farther along than you are. And we've got this situation in our field where, um, you know, the majority in the 60% range of practicing behavior analysts have been out less than five years and it's going to stay that way. And the percentages are going to get even more to that, that case, to that, um, that discrepancy, um, just because someone's in your environment and is a year farther along than you does not make them an expert. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, agree. Um, first, of all, I, I want to clarify for everybody because Linda, you know this, and Tyra, you know this, but everyone listening might not. And uh, that is, I, I worked my my mentor was John Bailey, um, in, and I learned everything about ABA that I know from him. Uh, and I, on the side, I worked with Anders Ericsson, <laughs> and I learned a ton hustle. from him <laughs> as well. Yeah, because his lab was like right upstairs, and so I just you know I spent a lot of time there. Um, so uh, yeah, just to clarify. But like, yeah, I think this is a really good point. I mean, that I kind of made in my notes ahead of time for this, uh, you know, for a for conversation was I think that a lot of us get into seeing people at conferences um, who are high profile individuals and speaking and, you know, that sort of thing, like kind of well-known individuals. And um, they're not always good models. Um, In lots of different ways. Um, You know, at the bar, (laughs) there may not be good models, or they may not be good models uh, socially and, and, you know, doing inappropriate things. They're also often in ABA, um, not great models at managing their own behavior. Um, And so like, just because somebody does a great study or does a great talk and is a guest speaker or a a keynote speaker does not mean they're an exemplar in all areas and domains. So like, I I guess, you know, one thing that I learned over the years is, uh, is be careful who you're modeling, whose Mm -hmm. behavior you're modeling. Um, So when it comes to expertise, expertise is very domain specific. Um, and so, um, you know, you can be an, you can be a great manager or a great leader and I'll just lump those together. We don't have to parse them right now, but like, uh, you, you can do that or you can be a great clinician or you could be both potentially, but those are separate areas, right? And, and you could be very good in one and not great in the other. So that's something, and you could be a great speaker and terrible at the other two. And you could be an excellent teacher and terrible at all those others as well, right? So, like, I think that, um, you know, that's one element of expertise that we should pay attention to. So, think about your targets and what you want to get good at. And you might have multiple exemplars, uh, depending on the domain that you want to get good at. Like I have some exemplars in terms of like time management that I won't name right now, but like, they are really, really good at it, you know? And like, that is what good looks like. And I want to talk to that person when I'm struggling (laughs) with it, but I also have exemplars in speaking and Mm -hmm. um, they're not the time management people, but they're the excellent speaking people. And like, they, I want to pay attention to what they're doing. Right. So, so that's just a kind of a note on expertise. Um, They, they, Erickson had a really specific definition of expertise. It wasn't just somebody who's good at what they do. It was somebody who has or demonstrates consistently superior performance on a specified set of of like representative tasks for a domain. So like that's exactly that's the wordy version of what I was just trying to say. Mm -hmm. So consistently superior performance. They have to have concrete results. And it has to be measurable. So, um, you know, let's just like put this to the test. Like, you know, if you see someone who you think is a really good leader, how do you know? And How do you, is there, is there, this is, this is dicey when it comes to leadership, because somebody can say and do all the right things and look great and not be great. And this happens all the time so much that you know, Nicole Gravina and I did a bunch of work for some international, multinational um, manufacturing companies. And we came up with this saying that like, you can, are, are you looking great to your, to your bosses and above, or are you being great to your team?
0: How mm-hmm. to right? be like, great.
1: Yeah. Right. And like one is in the corporate world, looking great is typically h- higher value than being great. Unfortunately. Yeah, and it's to the to the demise of the organization or the detriment of the organization and the team.
2: Yes, indeed. And, you know, all of us are so, suscept- so susceptible to those social contingencies that we are in danger of drifting towards the things that make us look great. <laughs> and they' unless you are actively paying attention to and pressing the lever for the things that will make you be great.
0: Yep. I wonder if, um, if we can talk a little bit about some practical strategies for trying to identify experts. And I'll just share a brief a brief story. This was p- after my PhD, I think, I was probably working with Linda in a clinical pr- uh, provider agency and I, w- I was getting ready to go to, oh no, we were at ABAI and I was texting her and she said, you know, what are you going to go see next? And I said, oh, I'm going to this talk. And you texted me, I'm sure you don't remember this, Linda, but you texted me back like, you know, I don't think that that talk is quite at your level meaning I thought I was going to go and learn a bunch of stuff. And you thought maybe that uh, talk was a little too low for me. And I was like, what are you talking about? This is the person giving the talk. And you're like, yeah, but that person has given this kind of talk, which is great if you're, you know, master's level, but you already know these things. And that was a really pivotal moment for me because I, maybe I'm not the best assessor of my own skills. And I tend to, you know, feel like I'm not doing things great, things like that, whatever. I think everybody feels that way, right? But it was really, it was an important moment for me to think like, oh, I need to be looking for some different outcomes from attending the conference now. Uh, And you gave me a couple of recommendations and they were great. Uh, But I realized in that moment how important it is to talk to you know, folks, our supervisees, our trainees, our mentees about, you know, being mindful. Like maybe I'm picking to go see something that isn't, maybe it's lower than my, you know, skill set, but I'm going because that person is amazing speaker or because, you know, whatever. Um, But to not just pick based on the name necessarily, like, so maybe I can identify an expert, but they're not going to be Uh, modeling skills at my level or what I might need. So I wonder if you two have some suggestions for listeners just in, because I don't think a lot of people get that instruction.
1: Mm, I think that, I mean, I think you gave a really good example of asking someone who you respect um, and is known to have a uh, high quality opinion, you know, like (laughs) there are two elements to that. You know, I mean lots of people I respect don't they'll just give you an opinion and they don't think about it, but there are some some people who I have hold very highly that when I ask them something, I do what they say because it's always right. You know what and I mean? And you know it feels, John feels just that to way interrupt.
0: To, to be fair, I didn't ask Linda because I just assumed <laughs> this was the level that I was at. Right. I was just telling her, but she gave me this gift of saying I you smarter your,
2: than that already. Yeah, I've seen your <laughs> yeah. skills.
0: Why are you going to that? Go to this thing instead, dum dum. <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
1: so I think asking is is a good strategy, you percent.
0: I wish I would have thought to do that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I you know, I used to do that. I actually I still do. I mean, when I go to when I go to the conference, I'll I'll talk to people who I know and respect and tell them what I'm going to see and then like see what they say you know I mean I think that's a really good strategy it's the way that I learned about a lot of gold in our field you know like not I mean it's just like some of them hit some of them were hits and some of them were misses and you have to be you know endure uh endure lots of you know trial and error I mean it's not really trial and error but it's kind of educated guesses right um and uh, and then you just have to pay attention and be open minded because the delivery might be bad but the ideas are really good too right so it's really complex i think
2: well and you know I, know I i can i agree with that it is complex and when i think about well what mediating repertoire do i bring around with me i know both of you have uh undergrad degrees in philosophy i don't but I've had multiple courses in logic. And when I am interacting with someone or kind of watching what they do or even listening to a talk, one of the things that I'm evaluating is how do they present what they're trying to say? And is it consistent with solid logic or are they tossing in some logical fallacies? And it is a logical fallacy to say a whole bunch of people agree with me because a whole bunch of people can all be wrong. (laughs) Like that's not strong argument, Uh -uh. (laughs) you know, and it's also not a strong argument to ever be going at some other person. That's ad hominem. And so for me, if you can rely on the strength of your argument, your statements, and really convey them in a clear and meaningful way you don't need all the other bells and whistles and what have you that's often what gets people in the door but kind of like as I'm watching I'm trying to think like okay there's a premise I'll follow along with that I'll follow along with yep there's your conclusion yep I agree with it now that's not a super sexy way to to find your expert but um you know it's worked since the earliest philosophers and particularly when people like even the highest experts kind of entertain the possibility that other things might be also true And they acknowledge that out loud. Like to me, that's where I'm like, all right, I want to listen to you because you're not only telling me about the places where you're pretty darn sure you're right, but you're also saying, I don't know that I'm not wrong, but let's move forward to the conclusion of of what we're talking about here. So for me, those are things that I look for that resonate with me as I am interacting with someone. I don't know if it necessarily is going to make them an expert but i feel like uh, it will make them a more trusted source of guidance and yes i want to kind of uh follow that line that you're laying down for me
1: yeah those are all really good points i mean uh I think you did a really good job of explaining the process of while you're listening to the talk or book or whatever um, and evaluating it, you know. Um so I'm all process,
2: from... no outcomes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <That> <laughs> I get a few
2: outcomes, but I focus on the process.
1: <laughs> it's really good though. I mean, because I, I guess I was I came into this thinking um to answer the question at a high level. It's like, well, how do you how do you triage from all the millions of books and Ted talks and conferences and whatever
0: and podcasts
1: and podcasts, right? Like some of these things are just like thrown together. I don't know. (laughs) Um, And um, no, but uh, so I I think at that level, I'm thinking, I want to ask people also, I, I, I make it a habit to when I'm talking with friends, just smart people and uh, coworkers and colleagues and clients and stuff like that i'll ask them what they're reading right now,
0: mm-hmm. or I'll
1: ask them what they're interested in right now and it's it's a, I mean often a wealth of knowledge you know, and I don't get to read all those things, but boy, I'll tell you what book summaries are a really good um, strategy when it comes to a lot of that stuff, and then you can get the, the flavor of it and there's also the tool blinkist that I've used. And that is like 15 minute or 12 minute, um, you know, audio book summaries of just about everything that's out there. Right. So like you can get quick access to a lot of ideas and then you can follow up and go deeper if you, you know, if you want to as you kind of triage them using Linda's logic principles.
0: (laughs) Hey, I love a structured approach because it gives you something to go back to right. And evaluate, like I've used that approach now eight times and you know, seven times, it's been a match and I've watched someone or learned something great or what have you. So I think that that's important.
2: Well, you know, I would love to spend, uh, you know, there's also a lot in this chapter about self-management and we could go on about that for days, but there is this idea of crafting a community of practice for yourself. And I wonder if we couldn't spend a little bit of time talking about that, because I think um, in addition to kind of being organized, managing your time, self-managing everything, and that's gonna help you manage stress as you transition into your career, having your people is a critical, critical way to handle your stress and manage your stress, build that resilience, and keep yourself happy and engaged in a career for 30 years. You know, I too have been in it this long and the times when I've felt a bit out of sorts have often been when I'm not stretching enough. I'm I'm doing the thing again <laughs> and kind of need that I got to learn something or when um My community of practice got a little too small. I was starting to feel professionally isolated or that my people were away out there instead of right here in my, you know, kind of virtual space. They didn't have to be right in front of my face, but present for me in my thoughts, in my actions, interactions available to me. Um, John, how do you think about that phrase, community of practice? And do you have one?
1: That's a great question. Uh, I, I think of it as you know creating the right environment for my success. And success means happiness and engagement and learning and all the things that you might use to define it. Um, and, and just so like, just to go to the basics here, let's just remember that behavior is a function of its, of, of our environment. Right. And so, I mean, for me being self-employed owning a business, um, I have, I can create a team, um, but I work at home a lot. Um, sometimes I work with clients and I travel and that's energizing. Cause I've I'm around people, but for me, I'm, I'm really an introvert, um, uh, but I kind of have learned to be extroverted and find that reinforcing too, right? So like to use kind of non-behavioral terms, I get a lot of energy from being alone and thinking, but I go too far sometimes and then I feel isolated, right? So like, you've got to know yourself, but for me, it's, um, it's really useful to have a community of people that I can talk to and relate to and get ideas from and just expose myself to, right? Uh, To create that environment. So I was, I was thinking about it and, you know, when I was at Western Michigan University as a professor, um, there was a department and there was a, there was a community and there were probably just like any department, there are, there are smaller groups, like subgroups of that community, right? And so I had, I had that. And then I had a lab with like 10 students and that was an awesome community of like ideas, exchange of ideas and stuff. And then, um, you know, uh, then I had the OBM network and that was another kind of community. Right. And I ran that for a while. And, um, and then that out kind of, for me, it outlived its usefulness um, for where I was. And then, you know, and then I got together with a smaller group of people, like 10 of us formed this thing called the BMT Federation, which was behavior management techniques, another name for OBM. Um, and we would travel together and spend like a couple weeks a year. And then we, you know, all face to face and we would spend all day for a couple of weeks talking about OBM leadership strategy, teaching each other, what are we reading, you know, working out concepts and techniques and principles and uh, just geeking out about it, really. And, um, and then, you know, for the rest of the year, we would be in close communication, we'd talk frequently and have emails and stuff like that. And that kind of ran its course. And then, um, you know, since then, I've been, I've been uh, working in mastermind groups. So I discovered that concept. And if you haven't heard of that, Mastermind is a, a concept that was developed by entrepreneurs really. Um, and, um, and and the idea is to bring together business owners um, to talk about whatever it is in their business that might be the bottleneck or challenge or opportunity. And also talk about their wins because owning a business or, or even if you don't own one, running a business at the highest levels is very lonely. You can't talk about all, everything. It, to some extent it's a performance, right? It's not ingenuine, but it's, it's outward facing. And it's, you yes. can't say everything.
2: And you don't so, need to share your stressors down. Like that's a no. responsible way to run your business, but you right. need to
0: st- share them somewhere. Yeah. That's right. right. Don't bitch down. Just that's the highlight of it. <laughs> 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 Put
2: it on right. a coffee mug, darn it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So like, um, Again, it's about being good, right? We come back to that, and being good does not entail bitching to your team. Um, but you need, but as a human, you need to have exposure to other people where you can have those conversations, and so like that's what a mastermind really is. Um, and so I've I've been part of a mastermind where I'm I don't run it, I'm a member for five years or so. Um, and, uh, it gave, it gave me this idea to start something. And Linda and I actually have been running one now for ABA owners for a year or so. And, um, and so the way this works, it, these can work in lots of different ways, right? Like the one I'm a member of has 200 people in it. And, uh, so it's, you know, it's, it's big and they break you out into small groups and stuff like that, but, um, but it's still a big group. The one that Linda and I are running now is like, um, 10 to 15 people, something like that, small, always small business owners, um, not, not big business. We're really focused on helping small to medium-sized ABA companies kind of succeed. And, um, and the way that it works is that we get together and we, in a structured way, we share kind of our, our opportunities and our challenges and we get input from the group and it's facil- facilitated and coached uh, by Linda and I, we talk about clinical systems. We talk about leadership. We talk about how to structure your organization for growth and what, like when to grow when to grow and how to grow with quality, um, and stuff like that. So like you can choose to focus on whatever you want in a mastermind. Um, and I'd encourage you if you haven't heard this term, like check it out. And, um, if you're interested in what I'm doing, reach out and to me or to Linda and we can tell you more about it. Um, but, uh, But yeah, that's kind of, I'll let you guys kind of pipe in. I mean, what what are your thoughts about that?
2: Yeah, I was uh, newer to the idea of a mastermind and kind of John's my buddy. And so I thought if he's saying it, I'm going to uh, believe it. (laughs) I at least long enough to give it a try. And one of the things that I think has just been so striking about it is Even with the limited amount of time that we're together at regular intervals, the people in the mastermind really connect to each other, like each other, rely on each other and feel okay having some vulnerability. And, you know, we're kind of intentionally creating an environment where that can happen. But darn if it doesn't work and it doesn't work quickly. And, you know, it's it's interesting to see how readily these people uh, thank each other and describe the, the positive impact of having a place where they can talk about that they're considering something, but they're not sure if it's going to work. And uh, but they have to make the decisions, there is no passing the buck. And I think that that is absolutely, uh, that's kind of the CEO, owner, founder um, burden, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so having that group of people that you can get their perspective and know that they know what it's like to feel like I have to be the decision maker and I'm just trying to, you know, gather options. Uh, it, it's been great, and um, um, you
1: know, can I, can I can I add something to that? Um, yeah. just, you know, from a perspective of a, of a listener, and this is not about our mastermind at all, but this is about this is about investing in yourself and your and your organization, and it's about recognizing that you are a knowledge worker, and. And right, and we have all these misperceptions about what work is, and it's all driven by this, the Henry Ford, you know, like uh, assembly line approach to to running organizations. We don't do that anymore. Like that's not a thing in in, in ABA, right? We're not doing widgets. We're not producing a product. We're actually thinking. That's what we do all day long, even at the front lines. Uh, you know, RBTs, anyone in your organization, they're knowledge workers. They're not making anything, right? So I know I've gone on about that, but so here's the punchline to that. If we have a conversation, the three of us, you might, Linda, Tyra, you might give me an idea that changes my life in two seconds, changes my whole business makes me a million dollars or whatever it is. Like, you
2: better send me a little bit. <laughs> Hashtag
0: 10%.
2: <laughs> but you're it's right. So, and if you don't so- have the conversation, you miss that. If yeah. And, you know, I tend to be kind of heads down. So I give major props and thanks to John because I had probably been – running my own company for about a year or two and feeling that same loneliness isolation like I've just got to be the smart one for all my clients that's that's why they're my client and John reached out and said hey can we just get a time on the books and talk and I was like so you like yes what would you like to talk about I'll do my adequate preparation and he's like we're just gonna like hang out and talk about some smart things okay and I was like okay (laughs) <laughs> but we just started having these fantastic conversations. And he would say, man, I'm. can I record this? Like, this is an awesome, fertile ground. And you only get that by protecting a little bit of time to, yeah. to have conversations with people who are experts in whatever they do, who are smart, and who um, maybe make you think differently.
1: Yeah. And my point to all that is that is worth paying for. So, you know, like find an opportunity that looks great and try it or just like Linda and I, we didn't pay each other to talk to each other. You can reach out. You can do that on a small scale on your own. But I'm just saying, if you're not able to do that, if you're not able to do it in a way that is suitable to you, just remember that that one minute conversation out of two days of time that you might spend in the mastermind might change your business and change your life. And it's totally worth paying for.
2: Yeah. Well, that is a fantastic note to end on. Um, This podcast and this chapter were really about the fact that You know, once you're out there, once you're practicing, you have to refine and develop new ways to learn because there's not that same um, structure where your environment is actively seeking to teach you in a way that has before. Um, a, A certain agency You is needed on your part to go find it, to build that community, a certain uh, self-managing so that you have a little bit of a time cushion to spend that time talking with someone to get that knowledge. And then just being ever more careful and nuanced and narrating what you see, why it works, not just that it works, and put yourself in a position to connect with people that are doing something you can't do yet. That's and that's a great them.
0: summary. Uh, and I would add to that that a um, an effective high quality supervisor will teach. Their trainees will model for their trainees and supervisees all of those things and not just leave it to chance that the person then post certification is going to somehow develop those repertoires. So, those will be facilitated and modeled and uh, talked about and demonstrated. And so, um, you know, super important to develop those skills for yourself. But also, as a supervisor, you gotta, you gotta. Do that for your trainee and your supervisee. You have to take the time to talk about the repertoires they're going to need for success in the long run.
2: Well, thank you so much for joining us on the lift. This is Linda LeBlanc with Tyra Sellers and our guest John Austin. John, thank you so much for being here with us.
1: I am so grateful for you guys. I love you guys. Thank you thank so you much, John. For this me. was
2: wonderful. Thanks for being here.